Welcome to this eighth installment of Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Before we get to our main event, I want to make a few short announcements. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Finally, please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Sister Kathleen Noon-Degnan. Sister Kathleen is a member of the Congregation of Notre Dame and founding director of the Degnan Institute for Earth and Spirit at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. She has been a professor of religious studies for 40 years at Iona, where uh, while guiding the, the Merton Contemplative Initiative and co-convening the Thomas Berry Forum. She is also a Green Faith Fellow and sits on the board of the American Tehard Association. Kathleen earned a master's degree in the history of Christian spirituality under the guidance of Thomas Berry and Ewart Cousins. She also holds a doctorate in historical theology. Both degrees are from Fordham University in New York. She served as president of the International Thomas Merton Society and is a regular presenter at its meetings. Her book-length publications include When the Trees Say Nothing, Thomas Merton's Writings on Nature, and Thomas Merton, A Book of Hours, including an audio book that includes her sacred songs and psalmody. Kathleen is also co-founder of Scola Ministries, a project in service to the contemplative and liturgical arts, which has produced a dozen compact discs of her original sacred songs. She is currently working to publish the prayers of John Battista Giuliani, recently deceased founder of the Benedictine Grange, where she was liturgical composer in residence for over 40 years. And now here is Sister Kathleen Degnan speaking on Overshadowed, Thomas Merton and the Cloud of La Unknowing. Thank you so much, Sister Teresa. I thought we could begin this evening with the sung prayer, at least to listen to a sung prayer um, that I composed about the, the heart of a North American recluse. I think the first, and I don't know, perhaps the only one, Jean Lebert. Thank you so much, Peter. Good evening to everyone. First, let me begin by thanking you all for, first of all, for the invitation to be with you tonight. It's really an honor for me to be among my friends and colleagues of the International Merton Society. And I thank very much Baldwin Wallace University for hosting this um, contemplative inquiry. I really am grateful, thank you. Well, it's an honor also to bring together tonight two masters of the spiritual life who both leave us extraordinary legacies 
for all people, for all time, because their spiritual genius is perennial and their wisdom profound. It's still living and it's echoing and augmenting in the unfolding of human spiritual development and transformation. And I'm speaking, of course, of a 14th century English monk, Anonymous, and the 20th century American monk, Thomas Merton. We'll try to bring them together tonight in conversation, not to rehearse the depth and breadth of their teachings, because there certainly isn't time, but to let the energy, their energies, vibrate in proximity to each other. And in this way, we might come to know something richer about the contemplative life, so important for us postmodern contemplatives as mystics of the Anthropocene and as saviors during this era of the sixth extinction. So let me begin by sharing something of the agreements that I found between these two masters. The first one I discovered is the simple understanding that they have both, that there is no way for humankind to save itself or its living biome that is our common home unless there's a radical great awakening from the hallucinatory, sonambulatory, predatory, self-sabotaging existence that entangles humankind in the hell realms of suffering that we witness throughout history. This radical great awakening, this rebirthing, is the fruit of a very serious process and practice of what they and we will call contemplation. So whatever hope of human evolution now through the emergent media of artificial intelligence or of genetic manipulation or endeavors to come, the enlightened religious tribes of our species say that the work, this great work of transformation must be an inside job, a process of profound gestation and labor to bring forth by whatever name, the new human. Now the second agreement that I found between our brothers uh, is that this work needs to be undertaken without interference of the rational calculating, conceptualizing mind, but at a greater depth of receptivity and creativity, unconscious to and not subject to our habits of rationalizing and rationalism. That is to say, both masters agree that the work to be undertaken for the rebirth of human nature and human culture must unfold beneath what they poetically refer to as a cloud of unknowing, a term long used, greatly favored in other words by many traditions. In Christian terminology, cloud usage has a long and rich pedigree originating with the theophany of the divine one Moses on Mount Sinai in his experience of sensing the divine presence overshadowing him in a cloud. It had no other name than Yah, I am, so that it might be ever elusive, not subject to human possession or manipulation or domestication or colonization. In other words, idolization, so it could not be an idol. Yet what lived beyond the eclipsing cloud was experienced by biblical tribes to be also intimate, a faithful presence that followed, allured, and mesmerized them for all time. In one way or another, these faith traditions taught that human existence was to be, li be lived beneath this cloud, since it had the power to activate human vitality, spiritual liberation, and further emergence. 
So what of this cloud? And if it be our destiny and our vocation and salvation to live in it, way to enter it. But the many masters who knew the way and taught the way toward the cloud, it was the great pioneer and spiritual explorer of the ancient church, another anonymous monk, a sixth century Syrian, Suda Dionysius the Areopagite, Gait, is what he called himself a spiritual genius who left us well-delineated theologies of the mystical life in several texts that remain touchstones for the new birth in Christian form. These transformation by Dionysius of the Christian way are very rich and varied, but two dominant modes of spiritual development have been curated, emerge actually very richly, in these texts, and they've been curated most richly. And you, you know what these are, I'm sure. The path of life, called the light, called the cataphatic way toward divinity by means of analogy, bridging to unknown mystery by means of what we know, creativity that our languages make, that point to the sacred through symbol and sign, image, and word. And the alternate route in the path is the path of darkness called the apophatic way or the way of unsaying, the way of unknowing, a shadowy path that honors the ineffability of divinity. And though Denise is indeed the superstar of the Mystical Academy, he is really it is really his monastic confreres of a later generation who will transmit his lofty teaching with greater immediacy and fluency. The two giants that we want to talk to tonight, Thomas and Anonymous. For these two masters were themselves drawn to this way of darkness and unknowing, and so they could speak of it from the inside a way of silence concerning God, a way of intuitive responsiveness that is beyond rationality alone. These two masters would teach, especially the Christian West, how to make our way on this path of secrecy toward the horizon of mystery, through an unknown territory and beneath the cloud of unknowing, where we might learn to abide and hide there and die there and rise there to become a new kind of human there. So let's begin with some resonances between these two masters, noting some of the similarities in their shared features as mystics and monks and as revolutionary teachers of a process of human spiritual emergence that holds promise for the renewal of life on this planet in the regeneration of the human species, freed from the debilitating cathexis of disorientations and confusions, what our tradition so neatly calls sin. Both masters are monks, maybe even they were both Cistercians, but we're not sure. Both of them were Anglos. Both wrote, both wrote in an engaging contemporary vernacular of their day that spoke clearly and directly to their generations. Both wrote of sacred matters during times of unprecedented historical crisis. Anonymous, within the interval of the Great Plague and the Hundred Years war of that tragic 14th century, it killed half of his fellow English folk. Times of great political upheaval. Merton also wrote during the crisis of post-modernity, which is yet unfolding, and the dawn of Anthropocene, when our species had, with the use of reason and rationalizing 
achieved the destructive capacity to end all life on Earth by nuclear conflagration or by the acceleration of the sixth extinction. Both were themselves mystics, that is to say, experiencers of the divine life in the cloud of which they spoke and wrote. Both were critics of ecclesiastical institutionalism and religiosity. Both were teachers of young monks. They were formators. They were spiritual directors. Both were exceptionally intelligent and well-read spiritual theologians who really, really knew the libraries of the Christian tradition and other traditions very well. Both had, as we've said, a preference for the apophatic path of dark contemplation of the ways and means of unknowing. And both taught roots toward this cloud and they offered skillful means for living under it and within its healing shadow. Here's what Thomas Merton says about life on the horizon of divine encounter. And I would just suggest to you all that, um, that you might take up again the Lexio of Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation, which you can't read because that's backwards. But in any case, that is the gem. Contemplation, he says, is life fully awake and aware and alive. It's spontaneous awe, a wash in gratitude, lived as realization of the unknowable abundant source, not as strange or unfamiliar, but as intimate as familiar. This is a way of knowing source beyond the rational mind, a knowing in unknowing. Contemplation for Thomas is a mode of intimate contact with this holy mysterious, it's the medium of divine encounter where the mercy of the hidden living one mystically touches human nature and in that touching transforms it, heals it, livens it. Merton says that this awakening enlightenment is the amazing intuitive grasp by which the human gains experiential certitude of God's creative and dynamic intervention into our ordinary everyday lives. It's a virginal knowledge, he says, without concepts or reasoning. And it's not the fruit of our efforts, but it's the gift given simply because we show up beneath the cloud of unknowing. Beneath this cloud, he says, I'm taught to leave myself in order to be found in the mercy and mystery of God. Contemplation then becomes the ground of multiple mutual discoveries, me of my God, me of everyone and everything. Our discovery of God is God's discovery of us. And the stunner is that God even discovers God's own self in me. This is what unfolds during the work. In the contemplative cloud, one comes to sense of the ineffable peace and intimacy of such a discovery. So the cloud is like a great tent of meeting and communion and consummation of all beings in the one field of unfolding, enfolding being that is God's own mystery. And there's another text that I would like to share with you, but I'll abbreviate it and paraphrase it for time's sake. You know it so well. He says that at the center, I'm speaking of Thomas here, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin or illusion, a spark that belongs 
entirely to God. Nothing can touch it or disfigure it because it is God's poverty, God's emptiness and nothingness in us. At the sight of divine kenosis, God's name written upon us, naming us as belonging to God. It's like a pure blazing diamond and it's in everybody and it is the divine life. And if, if we could just see it, all the darkness and the cruelty of the world would vanish completely. But then, this is Merton's coda. Then he says, but I have no program for such seeing. It is only given. Now let's be real because we can all agree that there is no other spiritual master who has ever lived probably to have written so much about contemplation, but in fact, never, never offering a program, a method, a process for contemplation. Yes, Thomas was evocative, descriptive, encouraging, but only in a few places. Do this, do that, here's what's next. Even his monastic students, and I won't name one of them, admit that Thomas Merton didn't really teach a method of prayer, rather taught that the monastic life itself was like a Montessorian immersion into a contemplative world of prayer. In fact, even his best dialogue partners couldn't get him to be really concrete and specific about his prayer life. But one of his friends, a Sufi Pakistani called Abdul Aziz, wrote and asked him very directly, Brother Thomas, how do you pray? And this is what Merton said. Prayer. It is centered flash word. It is centered entirely on attention, flash word, to the presence of God and to his will and his love. All of those in a kind of subtle neon. He says one might say that this gives my meditation a character described by, now he's making a link to Abdul, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as being before God as if you saw him. But of course, there is no real seeing. It's the adoring of God, the invisible, the one beyond comprehension, intuiting in my prayer, divinity in and as all. And in my heart, he reports, there is a great thirst for God. So he sounds the keynote of longing and desire. Then he says, and then my prayer is a kind of praise that rises up out of the center of this nothing and this silence. So powerful. My prayer, he says, is not thinking about anything, but it's a direct seeking of the face of the invisible, which cannot be found unless we become lost in the one who is invisible. So powerful. But you know, we might say, we want this. Yes, teach us. Teach us the moment by moment practice of this. But we have, I think, to leave that to anonymous, to our 14th century spiritual master, because he's the one who really offers to his young um, contemplatives, his young mystics in training, this kind of guidance and direction. As a matter of fact, the spiritual classic that he leaves us, and that has influenced so many spiritual masters of his own generation and thereafter, it is in fact a letter of spiritual direction in 67 chapters to a 24-year-old monastic aspirant. He wanted to go deeper into 
the mystery of God. And so Anonymous begins to teach him. He tells him that at the core of this whole practice that he will open for him, and at the core of Anonymous's writings, his inspired opus, is an invitation and an orientation to experience what the Syrian monk, Dennis, and all of the Eastern masters teach, and of course, Thomas Merton, the experience of theosis, a pathway to human div divinization by the oneing of the person, the human person, in the divine mystery. So however much the English master of the cloud, borrowing, taking from Surta Dionysius, he simply doesn't transmit Dionysius's teaching. He utterly transforms it. Whereas Dennis's lens was through a Neoplatonic inspiration focused on the mind's movement beyond sentiment and reason toward the numinous cloud of unknowing, the English master is rather inspired to focus on the heart's journey toward the cloud, a radical movement, yes, toward theosis remains, but now it does not progress by way of cerebral detachment. Rather, the fuel for this journey toward the cloud is by longing love, it's by desire, it's by actually activating this human, one could say, engine of being. The cool aloofness of Dennis grows warm and intimate. It even grows passionate by the time the great work makes its way from Syria to England, through Greek to Latin, and then into English, into the raw and flesh, fresh Middle English of his moment. And so he tells us, he tells his young charge that this work of the cloud is to be done essentially under the suasion of desire. And its work is an essential stripping back to original heart and mind by way of intention and attention. The master insists that this mode of prayer really As arduous as that prescribed by Suda Dionysius, because what it requires is the heavy lifting of one's own will and the elimination of all desire but one and the integration of all desires into that one toward the one who dwells in the nebula of mystery. Anonymous reminds his young contemplative seeker that he's never really going to know the nature of this one holy divine on this side of the cloud, but he will come to know something of its great love that allures us. Because on this side of the cloud, we cannot penetrate beyond its evocative presence. But the work to which his teaching is summoning each of us is not really a self-help or self-development program. This is not an ego project that we are involved in working at it. It's not even an effort to consciously evolve or to become enlightened or to be worthy of self-transformation. If we are sincere in this work, there is no self left anywhere during it as we set it aside to transform, because that would just be another way to activate our appetite for spiritual materialism, our habit of masked efforts at trying to get God 
For Thomas Merton and the Master of the Cloud, there is no way to get God, only to be gotten by the begetting God. And all this happens in a kind of courtly, courteous romancing in secrecy. And we can feel the English temperament so much through his writing. It happens in the play of erotic attraction and allurement within the sanctum of the cloud in a secret place, a love chamber, that is the closet of which Jesus speaks and instructs us to go there and hide in that sanctum where a lot of stripping off can go on, a lot of dropping one veil after another until the lover of God is naked before, to our amazement, a naked God. Now, the stirring, the beginning of this practice that we are being taught here, that gets played out within the cloud of unknowing, begins in the devotee as a kind of restlessness with ordinary, well, with even really powerfully devoted uh, discipleship of Jesus. At some point, being the disciple is not enough. There is a fierce restlessness that says there is something more, and I desire that more. Not simply to be a follower of Jesus, to be with Jesus in Christ, as Christ, our Christic self in God. And that is what we set out to become within the cloud. And this practice, this movement, this desire for the intimate way advances out of not only the human desire for God, but the master of the cloud says, of divinity's smoldering desire for humanity. And out of divinity's attraction and longing for the human, God fashions what the master beautifully calls a leash of longing love, and he attaches it to the human soul in such a way that that soul is always and everywhere yearning to be drawn by it nearer and ever nearer toward our heart's desire. And then begins the next work of the cloud, which is the work of stretching. As one begins to sense that tug, that pull from divinity's leash of longing love, we stretch. We reach out toward the magnetic luminous cloud and we do this almost kind of spiritual yoga within our intention. It is our will that's reaching out, our desire reaching out. But there's also got to be a kind of other kind of antipodal movement where the soul not just reaches out, but grounds down in a sure-footed standing still in humility. We've got to keep grounded for this contemplative yoga. And so best way to experience humility, as Thomas Merton tells us, is through humiliation. And so he invites us to do what we might call uh, good self-inventory. Allow me to paraphrase the uh, anonymous master of the cloud. Look up now, feeble creature, and see what you are. Drowsy, somnambulant, sleepwalking through your own existence. You have a weary and sometimes cynical heart, and you're fast asleep in sloth, in acedia, in spiritual torpor. You're distracted, scattered, bored. You're awash in the frustration of your libidinal desires. He didn't say that. I did. We are, you're a breathing cathexis of the missteps, mishaps, misunderstandings, mistakes. You're a real mess. 
and all this confusion, all the crimes of our lives, sits in the pit of your soul, the pit of your nature, like a lump. And that is what he calls sin. Sin is this lump that is just our existential nature, unrefined, unreborn. And the most marvelous part of the teaching is that he says, this lumpiness, this sin at the center or at the, in the debris within the sanctuary of the cloud doesn't matter one bit to the process of theosis. As a matter of fact, it's essential to the process because by the way, what is being transformed except this gross, dense human nature. It's so essential on the way to theosis. He will say about our sin during the time of the prayer, totally forget it, forget it. We just have to show up the lazy lumps that we are before and under the cloud in an attitude of unknowing, led by that leash of longing love. And then here's the next part of the direction. Now it's you, oh soul, oh little monk, who has to be responsive to the divine allurement by generating what he calls darts of longing love. And so the imagination kind of has a sense that one is taking one's intention, always uh, orienting it toward the cloud in these impulses of love that, is, that really, really grow as, in a sense, the, the, the well-being of our spiritual vitality, how strong and how true and constant are these impulses, these darts of burning love. And then he says, or I should say, the young monk objects and says, you know, okay, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm feeling the allurement, I'm yearning to express my own desire, but I get distracted. I've got a million distractions. I've got, I've got a million emails that have to be addressed. I have the world to attend to. And then the master says, okay. So now what you have to do is you have to weave for yourself a cloud of forgetting. Mm -hmm that you have to put underneath yourself between you in your work and the cloud. You weave for yourself a net, a cloud of forgetting. It's a strain, it's a sieve, nothing can get through it. It's amazing. I wish we all had, you know, actual um, nets that could <laughs> keep all of the distractions at bay. But this is the work of the cloud to keep consigning everything that is not this one desire for this intimate communion to the cloud of forgetting. You think of all of the beauty of the universe. You think of everything God has ever made. You think of the beauty of God. And when you get into the cloud of forgetting, you let it all go. One cannot even bring God into the cloud of unknowing. We must simply intensify and strengthen this desire for the living one. I have no idea what time it is, so I'm going to ask Teresa to give me a sense of how I can go. Um, you have about uh, 10 minutes yet, if you want to go that long. I'll be finished. So he says, once you begin to weave this web, this really tightly knit um, strainer, 
and leave it beneath you. Let it be your mat through which nothing can arise to the inner sanctum. No home invaders, no, no disruptors. Just stand, sit, walk, move, lie on the floor, stand on your head even. Believe it or not, the master of the cloud might give that instruction because he wants us to be so creative about this desire and how we will play, how we will woo, how we will romance the divine one. All of his language. We have to be a person of desire our whole lives long. We have to stand in desire. So the next instruction then, we're almost finished, but the next instruction, as we have come to this stage of our practice of the cloud prayer, is to allow a word perhaps to spontaneously arise within you that might somehow carry the vibration of your desire, of hold you, of tether you, so to speak, of root you in your prayer. A word, he says, not of more than two syllables, and one is better, that you will allow your breath to pray. It will sound within you with your heartbeat, and it will be what carries you toward the cloud. It will allow you to move from the cloud and stay connected to the cloud. He doesn't recommend a word. I wonder in the chat if we can imagine what Thomas Merton's word would be. The cloud master tells us that his is sin. Not so creative. But anyway, we might imagine what ours would be. That would bring us into the presence just to gaze and allow God there to act alone. As a matter of fact, when we are in the cloud, allowing the, our sacred word to be uttered, breathing our desire toward the mystery that is unnameable and unknowable, we are brought into a powerful transformational mode and moment. And he insists that we stay in the realm of our desire and let ourselves be carried by it. And I wonder if you can tell that I have misplaced the last few pages of my reflection. But I think I remember it. So Thomas then would rapturously summarize where we are and how we are in this cloud of unknowing. Excuse me, friends. Don't mind me. You might just take a breather. Okay.
Well, I know that that would embarrass most of you if it happened, if such a thing as this happened to you. Don't ask me why. I, I think I'm just so um, entrained to Merton's teaching that only humiliation can foster humility, that I will let it go. But let me finish by giving Thomas Merton the last word. The secret of my identity is hidden. And we could say it's hidden within this cloud in the love and the mercy of God. But whatever is in God is really identical with him. For God's intimate, infinite simplicity admits of no division and no distinction. Therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere but in him, as he resonates with that notion of theosis. Ultimately, the only way that I can be myself is to become identified with him in whom is hidden the whole reason for my existence. Therefore, the only problem on which all my existence, my peace, my happiness depends is to discover myself and discovering him. And the only one who can teach me to find God is God's own self alone. Thank you for your patience. Thank you, Kathleen, for bringing these two giants of the spirit together and giving us a chance to see them working off of each other over some centuries. Um, some interesting questions have come to us. Uh, first question, do you see any development in Merton's understanding of contemplation over time throughout his life? I guess I would say his life is really the narrative of his development in contemplation over his life. His life was this prayer. Um, and as we know, not always. And this prayer deepened as he deepened, as he opened, and as he came to know more and more of the self that he would have to leave behind and set aside as a way of coming to a deeper sense of what the contemplative self is. So the simple answer is yes, his whole life is the story of his deepening. I like that. This question probably uh, pulls together two or three of our questions. Question is, how do we embrace and embody the contemplative heart that you talked about? How do we embrace and embody the contemplative heart journey in this postmodern world? Mm -hmm. I have a feeling I know who asked that. But anyway, um, Thomas Merton said, it's morning, afternoon, evening, begin. <laughs> And that would be my answer. We embrace it by embracing it. And we embody it by embodying it. And we do that in a daily commitment to becoming this, this breath, this heartbeat, this passion. You know, the master of the cloud does not, it's interesting, he, I guess he does recommend that the, the novice should uh, commit to the prayer regularly throughout the day, a period in the morning, period in the evening. But he doesn't say, you know, you've got to give it 15 minutes, got to be on that mat 20 minutes, get yourself an egg timer. No. The master says this work is not done according to the watch or the clock. So as Thomas Merton says in, you know, Atlas and the Fat Man, he's got Atlas, who is the illuminated one, saying, throw away your, your watches. Throw your clock into the bottom of the ocean, because 
the master of the cloud says that this work advances by pulsations of love and desire. Now, let's just say this, friends. This path is not for everybody. And the good news is that there are so many ways into the mystery of God and of transformation and of fullness of life that if this is not, if this hasn't really, you know, spoken to you, there are other ways. But if it has spoken to you, and if you yourself are experiencing this yearning, this hunger for more, then trust that that hunger and yearning is God's hunger and yearning for you. I like this question that someone has presented. You, you talked about the English temperament of the cloud and the author. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate a bit and then maybe how, how would you compare that to Merton's own temperament? Well, you know, the interesting thing about Thomas Merton is that he swapped temperaments depending on when and where he was writing. Sometimes it was joyous that he was French. And personally, I don't blame him that he was born in France. Then he was joyous and joyous that he was a part of this English mystical tradition that flowered in the 14th century. And then he's exuberant that he's an American and, and wants to be a total absolute American. Um, what did I leave out? Oh, well, he's, you know, in the wonderful collection, Mystics and Zen Masters, that's where Thomas speaks about um, and really gives a, a lovely paean to, um, to the English mystics, to all of them, not just the master of the cloud, but to Julian and to Richard Roll and to a number of them um, that I'm not pulling forward right now. Somebody can help us. But anyway, it's there that he speaks of the master of the clouds, fabulous, um, kind of earthy, and yet utterly courteous nature. And Merton sees both of these as qualities of this medieval monk's temperament. Um, it's fun to try to read it in, in the old English, in the um, early English when the language was just really trying to ex express itself in it. So um, speaking of how trying to embody it, as you begin to live with this text, it would surprise you more and more. He's funny, you know, he's earthy. He's really earthy. He can be gross. Um, he's just a marvelous human spiritual director. And he's great compassion <laughs> for the human. I love it. Someone asked a really intriguing question about his uh, Merton's photography. Do you think his practice of photography helped his contemplative journey? And I was thinking, uh, would I have considered photography to be a part of the cataphatic approach? Because mm. you're looking, you're taking pictures, and maybe if you can tie that in, that'd be that'd be a cool tie-in as well. Well, you know, I know there's loads of books written about Merton's apophatic mystical temperament, but I consider Merton to be an apocataphatic <laughs> because you know, I mean, he is as ecstatic over a wren or a deer as he is, you know, poetic over the silence of the stones. So um, this is a fully, this is a big, big, big spiritual human being. And I think he moves through all of these. He, he, he trespasses all of these pathways as, as the moment allows. And so I would say about his photography and his calligraphy and all of those things, you know, these are 
modalities of centering. And remember when we spoke about his uh, response to Abdulaziz? I mean, that was actually one of the first words. And by the way, that's, of course, as we know, the name that this whole movement to which I feel he, his life gave birth again in this new era, uh, this movement of centering prayer, uh, Centering prayer really does require me to learn how to center. And there are those of us, uh, for example, it's very, very difficult for me simply to sit. I have to have beads in my hand. Um, I, I, I have to have the, I have to be tethered. I have to have some sort of thing that I can, that will tie up some of my anxious energy. Thich Nhat Hanh says that he can't meditate unless he's walking. <laughs> Makes me feel so good. Um, Dalai Lama says it takes him two hours in the morning to deal with his mental obscurations from just getting out of bed. I mean, it's amazing. I would say everybody has to have some sort of spiritual practice. I think the... Um, the more we really grow as contemplatives, everything becomes a spiritual practice. You know, it hasn't happened to me in the kitchen yet. I really hope it does. But I know people for whom the kitchen is their cloud. You know, they're, they're working in silence. They are allowing something to emerge out of nothing. The garden wherever we find this terrain where we can allow ourselves to generate that desire and hurl it toward nothing and no one through these darts of burning love. Yeah. Well, as much fun as this is, uh, we probably better make this the last question. Can you describe in your own sense what the experience of theosis, of deification, is or feels like in this life? Hmm. <laughs> well, Thomas Merton, of course, has written about this and about this. I do this because this is what Mu the word mystic comes from the word of oh, silence, not saying. I think it was Bernard of Clairvaux who said it's better to glow than to know. Um, but in some sense, it can't be spoken. And yet I think probably someone who is within the realm of this kind of meltdown and I don't want to say absorption because that's going to get us into all sorts of theological conversations that we don't need but this intimacy this unity this passionate love with the divine presence is to end the experience that you have of yourself you see, there's nobody there to experience theosis. And so it really can't be described even in human speech. Merton, even, well, the master of the cloud says, uh, you know that you are in the experience if you have an exceptional sense of vitality, of human vitality of human love for everything. You have, he says, a radiance. He says you have, you have a sense of well-being <laughs> and the master of the cloud, which is a good reason to do this prayer, says it even makes you beautiful. Um, he's so charming. This is the English part uh, in his description. So, I don't mean to, to make light of your very serious and deep question, but really um, this, 
is the root word for mystic. And I think that it's always probably better to ground oneself in the humility of um, not actually caring about whether or not you're in the theosis. You're in it if you're in it with God. And, and really, that's all you need to know. Because by the way, this is a cloud of unknowing. So thank you so much for your yeah. questions. Forgive my, my silly spirit tonight. I don't know why I'm like this. That's why we appreciate you. Teresa? All right. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. That was a beautiful note to end on. And I just want to thank you for not only sharing your thoughts, but also your experiences with us this evening. I also want to thank Peter Cunningham and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for providing the technical support. Peter was assisted by Franciscan Father Dan Horan, a theologian at CTU and an ITMS board member. Thanks also to Alan Culp, who does, did such a wonderful job moderating the questions, to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on, our, on YouTube, and to Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. And I thank Peter for putting up that uh, website uh, in the chat during the presentation. Uh, there you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. And if you're not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. Uh, registration is now open for the May 11th webinar, which will feature Michael Higgins speaking on Merton and David Jones, visionaries both. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in May. <laughs>